I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. Do you remember that line from J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? It's one of my favorite lines in that trilogy of books. It's Sam Gamgee near the end of the story talking to Mr. Frodo. Uh, and they had already experienced so many things. Uh, difficulties, colleagues, uh, temptations, failures, victory. And now they were standing outside of the dark city of Mordor where they were going to have to go and take the ring of evil. They began telling about the great stories that always have these tough parts that end up well. And, and he wonders, will people tell stories about us, Mr. Frodo? And then this line, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. It, it, to me, it's a remarkable statement. When you think about it, it has a huge implication. Uh, Sam, and really it's Tolkien writing it, has this conviction that even though we live our own lives and make decisions, that there is a larger story being told in this world. Uh, Tolkien's deep conviction that God is at work in this world and that whatever we are facing, God has promised that he is going to bring his plan to completion uh, and that someday we will indeed experience victory, uh, remade heaven and earth, a place that so many of us uh, call heaven. Do, Do you believe that that's true, that God is at work in this world? You know, a lot of people don't. Um, Some people uh, think that really everything is still just working its way out and maybe evil will triumph and maybe it's all just senseless. There are a lot of people in our world that don't want to have a bigger story being worked out because it makes us feel so small. You know, we have to think, you mean you mean my story just kind of fits within what God is doing? I have to fit into his plan. He's going to trump all of this. Well, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. When you and I place our faith in the crucified and then risen Lord Jesus Christ, what we walk into is our faith in a God who is involved in this world. And we believe that even though he gives us the freedom to make real choices and to have a, make a difference in this world, that he is going to complete his work. And when it's done, all things will be made new. I've always enjoyed this quip that an old preacher once said, I've never forgotten it, that as Christians we look at this world and we see history as his story. History as his story. And in the great, great stories of this world, almost all of them just speak to real life. They start often well with everything looking all right. And then there is often a break of relationships. There's a temptation and a fall that people wonder, will people ever get back together again? It looks impossible. And then some climactic heroic act and eventually happily ever after. Well, will the Bible's story be like that? Well, today we come back to Genesis chapters one through three. In fact, I'm trying something so ambitious Dan, I think it's because you are here with the Solana Beach Choir and we have our orchestra, we have New Year's and we have Valentine's Day. But I thought I'm going to do something ambitious, too. I'm going to preach from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22 all in one sermon. (laughs) You're kind of scared of this, aren't you? You're thinking, oh, man, I guess I better settle in or maybe I'd better sneak out. You'll just have to see. But we do go back to Genesis chapter 1, and what we see after we move through the introduction of God is to chapter 3, perhaps the darkest chapter in the entire Bible. Into this paradise, into this perfect world, sin enters and everything is changed. 
And after sin enters, people made in the image of God are cast out of the garden. And as you see in verse 24 at the end of chapter 3, it seems so hopeless. After God drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flashing sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It looks like people will never have access to real life or to God again. It looks so hopeless. And yet... When you read Genesis chapter 3, even the dark chapter, you will see that it is not a chapter of despair and hopelessness, even for Adam and Eve or for us. And the reason is the character of God. And so God begins to tell his story, and we're going to look at it. It's interesting that I'm going to put it into three different scenes. And I think it's interesting that these three scenes significantly all are set in a garden. Ready to look at it? First of all, scene one, the beginning. God's story with us as people started in a garden. The Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 through 3. Do you remember that in chapter 1 we saw in the beginning of our study that God introduced himself. Out of the darkness he spoke and everything came into being. So we know he is powerful. He is other than we are. He is holy. And then he created us in his image. Then in chapter 2, amazingly, the same powerful, holy God is seen walking with, that wonderful Hebrew phrase, walking with people, living life with people. But then comes chapter 3. And the people tempted to want to put themselves into God's place, give in to that temptation and go their own way. And, and, and the, the, the result is cosmic disaster. Uh, Eve first and Adam, but because the word had come to Adam, it seems that God holds Adam responsible. And I want us to think again of Adam's choice, the one he had to make, and we'll come back to it at the end. Adam, when he was tempted by the serpent, became proud, self-centered, and he put himself into God's place. Then when the opportunity came, Adam rebelled against the word of God and disobeyed the clear will of God. So that when the apple or whatever the fruit was, was offered, Adam grasped at the fruit of that forbidden tree and he sinned willingly. And and we read about it. This experience of evil opened their eyes. They were ashamed. They tried to hide from one another and from God. Everything was different. So that in chapter 3, verse 8, God comes walking again into the garden. And when you read it for the first time, if you can imagine this, the first thought we have is, what is this powerful, holy God going to do to these rebellious people? And you should just think the thing that you would imagine he's going to do is he's going to wipe them out. These little creatures that he has made. And yet he does not do so immediately. And I think we learn some things about God when we have failed that we perhaps would never have learned if we only had Genesis 1. What do we learn? I'll just have to walk through it quickly. Number one, we begin to see that the God that we believe in is a God who seeks after people, even after failures. Chapter 3, verse 9 is this wonderful phrase. He comes into the garden and he says, where are you? Now, the big question is, what is this tone of voice, right, parents? (laughs) What is this tone of voice? Is it, where are you with that sneer of the serpent? Do you remember the, the sneer that the serpent had? Did God really say that? You know, parents, we can be like that. Where are you? Do you think you can hide from me? Do you think that's the attitude that God had? Well, let me tell you, when I read the rest of the Bible, it becomes clear to me that that is not the heart of God. You read through the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and other places when people had walked away from God constantly. 
God seeks after people lovingly and always says, if only they would return, I would welcome them. It is the heart of a father whose daughter or son has willingly rebelled and left and the father seeks after that loved son or daughter. And that's the God that we believe in. Brothers and sisters, let me just tell you, the God we believe in, when we come to church and have parts of our lives we try to keep hidden, or even if we leave and say, I'm not coming back again, God still loves you. And he seeks after you. Um, If God waited for us to seek after him, we would never come. The consistent message of the Bible is that while you and I were sinners, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Or isn't that that powerful, powerful, insightful word of Jesus in Luke 19.10? Why did I come? Why did I come? He says, I have come for this reason, to seek after and to rescue people who are lost. Just know that God is seeking after us today to do something good in our lives. He's a God who seeks. Second, he's a God who provides. I I really like verse 21 of chapter 3. That the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Isn't it it amazing that God provided for them even when the mess that they were in, they had caused. And a couple of things that you see is, first, he makes up for their pathetic attempts to try to clothe themselves. They did what all of us try to do. They messed up and they try to just make it up by themselves with their own strength. And it it was the same kind of, of, of attempt that we try to make. Fig leaves. I've even heard they're somewhat poisonous. A botanist went through my door and said, fig leaves are not good things for people to wear for very long. He made them garments of skin. And I'm really understanding this because he knew that outside of the garden, they would need provisions. He provided for them for life after Eden. What kind of a God is this who loves us in spite of the fact that the mess we're in, we've caused ourselves? And I thought about it too. You know, today is a beautiful day in Southern California, isn't it? 80 degrees and sunny. And I'm going to leave this service and hop on a plane and go to Chicago. <laughs> it's going to be 18 or so. I'm telling you, fig leaves aren't going to do it. <laughs> I'm so thankful that there are skins and clothes that are here. And a God who says, I know your needs and I care and I will provide this consistent word of the Bible. Jehovah Jireh. One of the names God gives himself, a God who provides even when we fail, a God who seeks, a God who provides, a third, a God who is merciful. So much I'd want to say, but look at verse 14. God places some limitations on his curses. Yes, he must keep his word. He he will punish evil. But notice that he curses in verse 14, the serpent. And in verse 17, he curses the ground. But people made in his image are never directly cursed. Yes, we feel the effects of the curse. Uh, snakes that crawl, they scare the willies out of us, don't they? Did you ever see the Indiana Jones movies where he, where he would say, I hate snakes. Well, so do I and so do most of us here. There's this conflict that we sometimes have with other parts of creation is very real. And also the rest of the other kind of creation, uh, thorns and thistles come. Uh, things are out of sync in our world, seismologically, meteorologically, so that we feel the effects of the curse. But God does not curse people directly. He does not wipe them out immediately, though death does eventually come. And even that, in a sense, is a mercy. 
Do you know for us to live as imperfect people in a sin-filled world forever and ever and ever and ever? I'm just telling you, that would be no paradise. It's a mercy. And, ironically, God even uses death itself as the very means of his turning this thing around. For Jesus, the sinless one, entered this world. And if you read John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd's going to lay down his life. And the reason is so that the sheep can live and have abundant life. And that abundant life is the other lesson we learn about God. This God who seeks after us and who provides for us, who will be merciful to us, is going to make all things new. I want to show you what I think is the most intriguing verse. If we have other Old Testament scholars here, you'll you'll probably wrestle with me over this one because scholars have debated it. But I'll let you know how I think about it. Look at verse 15. Uh, God is talking to the serpent about the curse. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Uh, He will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. Now, just look at that. What on earth is that talking about? What on earth is that talking about? Is it, as some have said, it's referring to a prophetic word about the Messiah eventually coming. And even though the curse of this world will nip at his heel, he is eventually going to crush evil because the resurrection will come. Many Christians have read it that way. Is it something else like that, but a little different? The Apostle Paul in Romans 16:20 seems to indicate that through the seed of the woman, the church eventually is going to be formed. And that this church that is formed in the name of Jesus is going to be the main vehicle for God's kingdom and rule to happen. And that that evil is going to be crushed when God culminates his work among his people. Is that what he's getting at? Or is it the kind of thing that people who don't believe that God is working out a story and is going to bring history to completion, they don't believe in this kind of prophetic thing. Is it just that what's being said here is, listen, for the rest of existence, uh, snakes and people aren't going to get along. So that as you're taking a walk in the canyon this afternoon, yes, there might be a snake there and it might bite your heel, but sometimes you're going to crush its head. What what do you think about that? Well, I'll tell you what I, I think. At least, at least it is saying this, that in the curse that is being given, God is saying that those who perpetrate evil will feel that that find that that evil is dealt with. Romans one, the wrath of God is going to be poured out against unrighteousness. And I think it's saying even more that ultimately evil itself will be crushed. It seems to me that in this way, in a very small way, our first glimpse into the redemptive plan of God is being gained. Uh, This cosmic battle that's going to go on between good and evil, God is helping us to see it and that he is still God and that evil will not prevail. So that when you come to the end of chapter 3, it looks like this relationship between God and people that we had in Genesis 2 that was so good. Kind of like a Jane Austen love story, isn't it? Like persuasion, my wife said. So you have a break in the relationship and you wonder the whole time, will they ever get back together again? And God is going to say to us, yes, I'm going to bring you back together again. And the evil that has separated us will be crushed and the end will be better than the beginning. So what does the end look like? That takes us to scene three. Yes, I said three. I've called it the culmination of the story. That God's story will find its fulfillment in a city garden called the New Jerusalem. Now I know 
that I'm going to let you know something about myself. I, I love to read stories. You can probably already tell that. I like to read theology books and commentaries too, but I love things that have plots and characters. And things. I like to get into that. And sometimes when I'm reading a story where there's a lot of tension and there's a character in the story I really like, I'm wondering if, if, if she's going to get killed. So you know what I do? I come to the very back of the story. And if I see her name there, I say, aha, I'll keep reading the story. If, if her name is there, I'll keep going. So in the same way, what I'm going to do is kind of bring you into my obsession. We're going to go to the end of the story and we're going to find out if we're still there. Because <laughs> then there, maybe there's some hope to it for us. And at the end of the story, we find, amen, there is hope. Look at it. John, in exile, in a difficult time, has this vision from the uh, risen, glorified Christ. And then he saw this. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Notice the language of Genesis that comes in. Because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It was coming down out of heaven from God. It was prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am. I am making everything new. Now, do you see it? Do you see it? God is declaring that he is working out his plan in history. And when he is done, what we saw, some of the beauty that we saw in Genesis 2 is going to be restored, except it's even better. God, using that same Hebrew notion of walking with, living life with his people. We're going to be able to do that. We already walk with God in a sense, and yet it's still by faith, not yet by sight. It will be by sight. Things will be restored. And yes, even though it's a city, the new Jerusalem, it sure looks a lot like a garden. The only illustration I could think of, I know there must be some here in Southern California, but you know, I lived so many years in Chicago. We'd go walking through the city of Chicago. We'd have all those skyscrapers and high-rise apartments and all the streets and stores and traffic that was there. And then, boom, you come right to Grant Park. Ah, oh, it's just so beautiful. Uh, Buckingham Fountain flowing, and so often you have blues music and jazz music that's going. It sure feels a lot like heaven in the midst of that city. Well, here, this whole city, because it's going to be a city, because there are going to be a lot of people there, from every tribe and language and nation, every day feeling like New Year, a combination of New Year and Valentine's Day is what it's going to be like, just like we're having today. And when we read about it, we see that that's exactly the image we have in, verse, in chapter 22, verse 1. So the angel then showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It was flowing through the middle of the great street of the city. Look what's on each side. Each side of the river stood the tree of life. We'll live. And there's plenty of fruit there, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. 
No, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. There will be no more night. They, they won't even need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. And then the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. I'll tell you, after reading Genesis 1 through 3, do you see how in this section God is bringing this beautiful story to completion and it's even going to be better in the end than it was in Genesis 2? Right relationship with God restored that had been broken. Walking walking with God. A right relationship with our world restored. You notice the very language, we'll rule again. We'd messed it up before. We'd ruled only for ourselves and our world has been ruined. But now we'll be able to further God's rule by our lives and in this world as his followers. And right relationship with one another. Even, even the battles among the nations are going to find healing because of the power of God. I don't know about you. I, I read this and I say, what a story. What a story. Has there ever been one that's been told that's better? When I read it... Am I the only one who gets up here and just, you know, sort of rants and raves out of enthusiasm? Do you, do you think, do you long for that to come? For that world to be and to be a part of it? And so you read the very end of Revelation 22 and you hear Jesus say, I am coming soon. And we say, Amen. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because this world is hard. All right. We've seen scene one and scene three, and it should make us ask this. What turned the tide? How did we get from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22? And interestingly, it happened in a garden. Scene 2, the turning point. God's story of victory centers in. It takes us to a garden. Here, I'm going to take you to a place I took you to last Good Friday. But in the light of Genesis 1 through 3, I think you'll see it in a new way. Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. And in Matthew 26, this is what we read. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said, said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. So he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and, and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me one hour? I'm going to look out. How many sleepers? I can't see up in the balcony very, very well. You watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because our spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus went away a second time and he prayed, Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see, Jesus is here in the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that he soon is going to go to a cross and that he's going to experience not only physical death but also in that place he's going to have to bear judgment for the sins of the world so you, you feel it don't you he, he knows there's an imminent 
catastrophe. And the biggest thing I want you to see is Jesus knows he has a choice to make. Some people think, well, of course, it's just his fate. He had to do this. No, 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 no. He had a choice to make. Would he go through the crucifixion or would he avoid it? It's clear to me when I read this that Jesus knew that there were ways that he could escape from this. So he had a choice to make. Would he do his father's will or would he engage in his own will? I'll tell you, when you read Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have to see this. You see a man in Matthew 26, just like Adam was in Genesis chapter 3, a man with a decision to make. My will or the Father's will. And and it was hard. Twice he would come back to his disciples and say, "I, I can't do this alone. I want you to pray with me. Couldn't you watch with me for one hour You need to watch and pray, he said to them, because you might fall into temptation. And he's telling us what all of us know, that these decisions between good and evil are things that all of us face. And even when we are believers, the spirit may be willing, but we're not complete yet. The the flesh, this body is weak. So what, what I read when I read Matthew 26 is Jesus at this very moment was experiencing this collision that I have faced so often. On one side, his desire to obey God and live in a way that honors God. But on the other side, this deep, deep desire to go my own way. Have you ever felt it? Don't we feel it every, every day? His spirit was willing, but his body felt weak. You see, we often think of Jesus only as being fully God. He was also fully human. And here we see the full humanity of Christ. My will or the Father's will, which one would he want more? That was his issue. That was his issue. And when we read that, it takes us back to Genesis 3, when long before this first Adam had stood in a similar garden and faced a similar choice. And do you remember what he did? He put himself in the place of God, and it ended up with cosmic disaster. So here in Matthew 26, when you look at it, we see the second Adam in a garden, He bears the untainted by sin image of God. And he is now being given the opportunity to reverse the effects of his predecessor. To bring the tree of life into availability to all people. So what was Jesus' choice? Do you remember Adam's? Where Adam was proud, Jesus could... If he chose, humble himself. Where Adam rebelled, Jesus could, if he chose, be obedient. Where Adam grasped at the forbidden fruit of the tree, Jesus could, if he chose, grasp the wood of the cross and bear the sins of the world. What would he do? His spirit was willing, but the body was weak. Where on earth does Jesus find the strength to make this kind of costly decision? And where do we? And I'll tell you, the Bible gives one simple instruction. It's found three times. Do you have your Bible? Chapter 26, verse 39. Jesus fell to the ground and prayed. Look look down in verse 42. Jesus went away a second time. And prayed. In verse 44, he went away a third time 
and prayed. All right, you say, that's all you have to offer us, Pastor? Just pray? Yes. Each time his prayer was the same thing. The words that expressed the agony of the conflict, how hard it was, they were honest words, but also in real prayer he found resolution to the conflict. The honesty. Lord, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. I don't want to go to that cross. And the resolution. But not my will. Yours be done. The big question. I'll tell you, this is, this is what seminarians debate about over lunchtimes, so let me tell you. Why did Jesus make the right decision in the Garden of Gethsemane? And Adam make the wrong decision in the Garden of Eden. Uh, some people try to say, is it that Jesus was not able to sin or was he able not to sin? Do you, do you see the difference? Was it, he, he wasn't even able to sin. He was God, so there wasn't really a choice being made here. Or was he somehow able to find a way not to sin? I'll let you debate about that in your small groups. And if you figure it out, let me know. But I will tell you this. Jesus was not play-acting in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has a real decision to make. You see it. This is this mystery of the Trinity that we've been singing about. Uh, One God, but three persons. Jesus could distinguish his will from the Father's. If he was going to go to the cross and bear our sins, it wasn't because he had to do it. It was going to be a voluntary sacrifice. So I ask again... How did Jesus choose right when Adam chose wrong? And the Bible just tells us that he was able to do it because he prayed. Uh, Genesis 3 is conspicuous for its lack of prayer. Gethsemane is filled with prayer. And in reality, it, it fits in together with many of the things I've talked about in these weeks. Adam didn't want to pray. Because I'm telling you, when we pray, we acknowledge God's presence with us. And we remember who is God. And we remember his power. And for us to try to control the thing is so foolish. Adam did not even want to acknowledge God. He did not want to pray. So out of Jesus' blood-inducing prayer, he urges us to do the same. Watch and pray. Really, I just see him saying to us, listen, when you leave this place, you're going to be wanting to bite forbidden fruit almost every, every hour of your life. Watch and pray. Because our spirit may be willing when we leave church. But this body is so weak. Because I tell you, above all other things, real prayer is acknowledging the greatness, the power, the holiness of God, and the presence of God. And surrendering our wills to him. So here we are. All right, our time goes too fast. Here we are with these three garden scenes. Where are we in history? We find ourselves where we're not at Revelation 22 yet. I jokingly said to Dan, maybe at Solano Beach, perfection has arrived. Maybe everything is new there. Not, not quite. We aren't here at Lake Avenue Church, are we? So we're not there, but we're also, there's still hope for us. Jesus has already died on the cross and risen again. So we're kind of in this in-between period 
where we already have the presence of God and, and the opportunity of the forgiveness of God and the spirit of God to make things new, but he's not yet done with us. So we have this opportunity to, to come to God and to know he's there, but we still feel the battles, don't we? We, we live in what I sometimes call the restricted presence of God by faith, not yet by sight. And so what, what I'm telling you is that when you leave this place, you're going to face many of the same struggles that Adam and that Jesus did. But you don't have to face them alone. Where, where you failed in the past, God seeks after us and says that all who trust in Christ will be declared, your sins I'll throw as far as east is from the west. Hallelujah. And I won't leave you alone either. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you my spirit so that you don't have to walk through this alone. And I'm going to give you my church. So that you can pray with one another. But don't be fooled. There are going to be some tough times making this decision to live God's way rather than your own. Amen. There are going to be parts of your life that when you walk into church, you're still going to want to keep those hidden. And you hope that God isn't really like that and knows everything, but he does. So we only hide them kind of from one another. So what do I want to tell you about? Let me give you three statements. When you leave church today, know this. The decisions that you're going to have to face between right and wrong will involve struggle. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be surprised by that. Living God's way in this imperfect world is hard. When when we have patterns of life and, and addictions, breaking those things is hard. I know some of you just want to say, amen, pastor. You know, I, I know that because we know this is true. When you're the only Christian in your family or in your place of work or at school, living for Christ is so, so difficult. Um, so don't be surprised. The way I've thought about it is this. No one in history was a better Christian than Jesus was. And yet when you look at Matthew 26... You still find the struggle that is there in doing what is right and going God's way. So don't be surprised. All right. Second statement. But know this. The Lord Jesus understands the temptations you'll go through. And he will meet you there in the midst of them. I know we come to church and, you know, in this church, I still wear a suit. Many don't anymore. But you try to look your best usually. At least you try to cover up those things we're trying to hide. And then we look around at everybody else doing the very same thing. And, uh, but we sometimes get the idea that nobody else in this place struggles with the things that I struggle with. Oh. It's not true. We even will think Jesus would never struggle with this as I do. Think again. The Bible says he faced every struggle known to us as human beings, yet without sin. So when you and I face these things, and we want to go this way when we know that way is the way God would have us to do, Jesus understands, and he will meet us there. He will not leave us alone. And the Spirit of God is still there to walk with us in the midst of these, if you will acknowledge it. And then a third statement. So that when we face temptations, we're standing there with that decision to make, as Adam did and Jesus did. The key is prayer. 
But it's not prayer the way most American church people think about prayer. We have made prayer into anti-prayer. We have made prayer somehow the opposite of what it is. You know, we've tried to turn prayer as if I can just do it in the right way, I can get God to do what I want to do. I can use prayer to somehow get my will done. Do you see that that's not prayer? That's why I started with Genesis 1. God spoke everything into being. And so manipulating God is a ridiculous thought. The one who's going to be in control is God, but what he controls will be good. And so prayer is this stopping for a moment and acknowledging that God is there. And then it's honesty with him. Father, I am wrestling with this. This is what I want to have happen. And sometimes you'll say yes. But sometimes the very thing we most want to happen, we already know that he has told us no. And then we have a choice to make. May I tell you what true prayer always involves? The end point of all true prayer is this, that when we pray, we will say, Let's see if we're going to get what that true prayer is. It was worth waiting for. Not as I will. Father, as you will. Now, some people tell me that's a cop-out. I tell you, it is not. This sets me free to pray almost anything. And so I do. It's what Jesus did. Father, I don't want to go to that cross. See the honesty in that? But your will be done, not mine. So I pray for you that way. Father, there's a member of my church family that lost her job, doesn't know how to provide for her kids. Makes no sense to me. Father, give her a job, and I pray it will pay ten times as much as the other one did. <laughs> but, Father, there might be something else you want to do. Not... Not her will or my will, but yours. Another brother or sister in the family has a father or a child so sick, hurting and in pain. I said, Father, this makes no sense to me. Why is that person hurting? Father, my prayer is that you will heal. Yes, direct the doctors, but do something that makes your glory known and heal that person. So specific prayer, do you see it? but not my will, yours. And especially in the midst of the temptation, we'll say, Father, I've been here before and so many times I have gone the wrong way. I want to do this. But Father, your will be done, not mine. Let me tell you something. Until he completes his story, finishes his work, those greatest times of experiencing the presence of God, I have found have been those moments where we have wrestled with this decision and at the end of the time have said, Lord, your will instead of mine. Isn't that true? And when we do, God strengthens us and he uses us to further his rule in this world because he's going to bring this world to make all things new through working in and through the lives of people just like us. And if you wonder how your life can bring about the rule and the kingdom of God until all things are made new, I'll leave you with this simple thought. The kingdom of God never advances more triumphantly 
than when men and women, boys and girls, faced with a strong desire to go our own ways, find the humility and the strength and the courage to pray. Father, your will be done. To his glory. Amen.